So aren't you glad that God is sovereign over all things, even, even those things? And today we're going to be talking about Jesus, who is our forever priest, and he saves forever. Uh, he's our forever priest who saves forever. I just love the title of that. So if you've got your Bibles and you want to go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 7, we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 28, which is quite a few verses. And just like the rest of Hebrews, there's so much information that there's no way that we can reasonably cover all of it. Uh, we could make this a six-year project, but I don't think that we want to do that either. So we're trying to get through at a, at a good pace and yet not skip over too much. Uh, but we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 28. And you, we're going to pay particular attention to verse 25 because 25 is really a kind of a summary of this section of Scripture. But the book of he Hebrews, of course, is all about Jesus is what? Greater. greater. Jesus is greater or Jesus is better. And you might well ask, you know, well, what is he greater of? Well, the book of Hebrews tells us that he's greater than the prophets of old. He's better than the mighty angels. He's better than Moses and the law, the Ten Commandments that the Old Testament Jews were under. The rest that he provides is greater than the rest Joshua provided when they went into the promised land. We have a rest that is with us all the time, right? The rest is that Jesus has fulfilled the law for us and we don't have to do any work to earn our salvation. We can rest in the work that he has done. We found out that he's better than the Levitical priesthood and we'll talk more about that today. And that Jesus is a, he's a priest, but he's of a different order. He's not of the line of Aaron or the Levitical priesthood, but he's of the order of Melchizedek. And then the writer of Hebrews says, well, I'd love to talk to you about Melchizedek more, but you're too immature to take it in right now. You see, you have this immature attitude that you want to go back to the Old Testament laws. And I think they did this because of a lack of assurance. They weren't fully sure that they were saved because they had sinned since they'd accepted Jesus or professed Jesus. And they knew that that sin had to be covered. So what, what do you do? Do you go back to the temple and sacrifice again? That was their temptation, I believe, to go back to the temple and sacrifice again. And the writer of the book of Hebrews says, no, you can't go back. That way is passing away. The new covenant is coming in. You cannot go back. You can't. You should not drift away in your faith. You should not neglect your salvation. Uh, you as immature Christians, you lack spiritual discernment. You're not bearing fruit and you're sluggish in the faith. And so uh, that is not desirable. And he says that we, that you, and I would say we as well, need to turn to Jesus the anchor of our soul. He's the one who is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and he has shown us the way. He is a greater priesthood than the Levitical priesthood. And uh, that kind of brings us up to where we're at today. So I hope you're ready to read the scripture. Let's go ahead and stand for our scripture, and then we'll have prayer after that, and then we'll get into the message real quick. Starting with verse 11. Listen closely, even though we won't be able to go back and talk about all of it, especially verse 25. 
Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, that's speaking of Jesus, from which we no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This because this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. That's important. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn, sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from, coming in off, prevented by death from continuing in office but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted from the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank so much for the opportunity that we have just to hear these majestic words and this description of Jesus as our high priest, a high priest who lives forever, who has the power of an indestructible life, and it is he who is interceding for us. And we pray that you would help us to understand what it means to be saved to the uttermost and what it means to have an intercessor who never goes away, who never dies, but who lives forever and has an indestructible life. Teach us this time and, and at this time. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Yeah. Well, as I mentioned, as you're sitting back down, I mentioned we're really going to hone in on this verse, Hebrews 7, 25, and then kind of use the surrounding scriptures to justify kind of the conclusions that I have drawn. And so verse 25 starts out by using the word consequently. In other words, everything that happened before, there's consequences to that. So it's kind of like the therefore. We talked about therefore 
being in the scripture and it always refers back to what has happened before. And in this case, consequently is used and it's saying that because Jesus is a, of a new priesthood, there is a big change coming about. <laughs> there is a big change as the old covenant passes away and the new covenant has been instituted. There's a change in the priesthood and necessarily according to verse 12, when there is a change in the priesthood, there is also a change in the law as well. And so this old covenant is passing away and the old covenant is just the covenant that God made with the people of Israel through the prophet Moses and he gave them these commandments. He started out with the Ten Commandments and he gave them the tabernacle and the means of sacrifice and the means of meeting and having a relationship with him uh, in the Old Testament and it was through the sacrificial system. And uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews is basically saying that is passing away and is passing away, why? Because of its weakness and uselessness. Look at verse 18. It says, for on one hand, the, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Now, the Mosaic law was not, uh, was not bad by any means. Uh, it only pointed out the badness in us, right? We could not live up to the law. And so these sacrifices had to be made. We couldn't keep the Ten Commandments. And so in that sense, it was weakness. It was a full of weakness and uselessness. Now let me make that clear. The, law, the Old Testament law was good, but it was weak. It didn't solve our basic problem. It only pointed out our problem, which is our sin. And so because of its weakness and uselessness, verse 19 says that there is a better hope that is being introduced by which we must draw near to God. So verse 19 says, for the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And we know what that better hope is, don't we? It's Jesus. <laughs> the better hope is Jesus and his priesthood. It's through his priesthood that we now have access to God. And so the old past, let this, you really got to understand the old covenant is passing away. This is the one that they wanted to go back to. They wanted to go back to that way, and he's saying it's passing away. You can't go back to that. It's no longer in effect. Now there is a new covenant. It's based upon not a priest of the line of Aaron or the Levitical priesthood, but it's based upon Jesus being a priest, and it's declared by God's own oath and by the power of an indestructible life, verse 19. That indestructible life is, is the life of Jesus, amen? Amen. Amen. Everyone still out there? Okay, all righty. And so because Jesus is this great high priest who is of the line of Melchizedek, Christ is able to save forever he is able to save forever completely to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Amen? That's, that's good news, right? He's able to save forever. I love, I love that. Uh, in my, in my uh, version here, it says that he is able to save to the uttermost. In some of your versions, if you're reading King James, I think it may say forever. I'm not sure. Anyone got a King James out there? Kevin, what's that say? Does it say forever? 
Verse 25. Uttermost, okay. Some, ver some versions will say forever. Some versions will say completely. Each one of those gives us an idea of the salvation that comes from Jesus. That it is complete, that it is forever, that it is to the uttermost. He saves us in every possible way, amen? He saves us in every possible way. And so the first question that you might ask, and a lot of, a lot of unbelievers actually do ask, is to be saved from what? And really, that's a good question. What are we actually being saved from? Well, we have a need, don't we? We have a need that has not been met. And we looked at that when we looked at the first verse that we read, verse 11, it says, now if perfection had been attained through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? We have a need, we are not perfect. <laughs> right? <laughs> We are not perfect. We can all agree on that and testify and raise our hand to that, that we are not perfect. Did you know that Jesus said we must be perfect? Jesus in Matthew 5, 48 said, you therefore must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. In order to enter into heaven, in order to enter into God's presence, we must be perfect. And we do that by having the righteousness of Christ, right? We don't take in our own righteousness and say, here I am, because we would fall utterly on our faces. But when we have faith and trust in Christ, his righteousness is attributed to us, and so we can be perfect. The Levitical priest could, could never do this. There was always another sin, another sacrifice that had to be made. The sacrifices went on continually and continually. And so Hebrews, a little bit later in the book of Hebrews, it talks about this, about the law is but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. So this, this Levitical law, the sacrifices that were being performed, it's like a shadow, it's a symbol of the true sacrifice who would come, Jesus Christ. You get that? So it, let's go ahead and read in verse 10, uh, chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, that the, the law is but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It, the law, can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the, since the worshipers, having been cleansed, would no longer have any conscience, consciousness of their sin. So I hope that's pretty clear. I'll just go back over that just a little bit. The law, even though these sacrifices were performed over and over and over, could not make us perfect, could not make us right before God because there was always another sin lurking just around the bend. And so Jesus comes to offer a sacrifice once for all, right? <laughs> One time for all. So there's also this idea, uh, just a couple verses later in verse 10, 
that sin cannot by, be removed by the blood of bulls and goats. That's exactly what the scripture says. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So we have the fact that these sacrifices have to be repeated. And these animals that are being sacrificed are just symbols. They don't actually remove the guilt of our sin. But it's only a picture of the Christ who would take away our sin. And so when you say, what do we need to be saved from? We need to be saved from sin in our life. It needs to be eradicated totally, 100%. The word of God equates our sin. I know this is kind of hard to hear sometimes, but I hope everyone's listening because I think sometimes we underestimate our sin. He equates it with rebellion, mutiny, Deserting your commanding traitor or being a traitor. Commanding officer or being a traitor. And God's anger and his wrath is against sin. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's wrath and his anger is a terrible thing. But it's what each and every one of us deserve. And it's what each and every one of us who have Christ have been saved from. And so in a very real sense, now hear me about this, because this is not preached very much, but it's gospel truth. What we are being saved from is God himself and his wrath against us. He is both the judge and the sacrifice. And that's what makes grace so amazing. And so without that, a sinner would ultimately go to hell, would have many life regrets, and essentially would lead a life without meaning. But God wants to save us completely. And so here's three things that he does save us from that you can write down when when Jesus has saved us, when we place our faith and trust in Christ, he has, first of all, saved us from the penalty of sin. You've heard me say this before, but it's good to remind ourselves of this. He has saved us from the penalty of sin. That's being cast into hell. He has saved us from that. He is saving us right now. If you're a Christian, he is saving us from the power of sin. And if you're a Christian, you know that struggle. <laughs> it's a struggle, right? He's, he's, he's cooperating with us by giving us and the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome our sin. But this too will be completed when we see Jesus. When we see Jesus face to face, we will be like him and our sanctification will be complete. Yeah, amen. I look forward to that day. I put, a, I put a quote. I can't remember exactly how it was worded. I think it was John MacArthur. But he listed all the things that he's tired of, and, and eventually he just said, I'm tired of struggling against sin. I'm ready, for the, I'm ready for Jesus to come back. I'm tired of struggling against sin. But that struggle, whether struggles are a sign of life, right? One of the questions I, I think pastors have most often is, I'm a Christian, but I struggle with this sin. Why do I struggle with this sin? Well, you struggle with that sin because you're saved and you have a conscience. You have the Holy Spirit 
who's convicting you. It's when you don't struggle against sin that you should be concerned about your salvation. Amen? That's true. He is currently, he's saving us from the power of sin. And ultimately, thirdly, he will save us from the presence of sin. We will be taken away from this environment. We will be in an environment where there is no sin forever and ever and ever. I like the sound of that, right? Forever and ever. <laughs> and that was my next question. In what way are we saved? We talked about how are we saved, but in what way are we saved? We're both saved forever and to the uttermost. Both of those, I think, are appropriate. So there is a quantity of life that we will experience, and it begins at the moment you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. It is for eternity, and it's forever. Just like the song that we sang, I'm not sure we sang this verse, but from Amazing Grace, when we've been there 10,000 years bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Amen. Amen. Someone said, well, how else can you describe what it's like to have eternal life or, or eternity? Here's one that's it's a little bit more of a secular illustration, but let me see if this works for you. You all know what a parakeet is? <laughs> a little bitty bird, usually in a cage. <laughs> uh, picture a parakeet in your backyard next to your sandlot, sand, sandbox. You take a pail, fill it full of sand, and then let some of the grains of sand fall through your hands. One bucket of sand has thousands of grains of sand. I would say probably millions, but... Let's imagine that you could instruct the parakeet to pick up one of the grains of sand in its beak, fly it to the moon, and drop it off. Let's say it takes one million years for the parakeet to go to the moon. He puts the grain of sand down and flies back to earth. That takes another million years for him to get back. He then picks up the next grain of sand and, you, and flies it back to the moon. He drops off that grain and flies back to the earth. A million years there, a million years back. One by one, the parakeet takes each grain of sand in your sandbox to the moon. When he is finished, you take him down to Key West, Florida, and there you show him the Atlantic Ocean and the beach which runs along the coast. You tell him, I want you to start cleaning off the sand on this beach one grain at a time. He starts there, then works his way up to Miami, then to Jacksonville, Hilton Head, Charleston, New York City, Boston, and up to Maine. He takes each grain of sand to the moon at a time, a million years there and a million years back. When he's done with all that, you take him out to the West Coast and from Mexico all the way up to California and Oregon, you tell him to take one grain of sand at a time and fly it to the moon. When the parakeet finishes with all you said, you say, I've got this other little spot called the Sahara Desert. <laughs> I want you to clear the sand off that place one at a time. When he finishes that, you say three-fourths of the. When he finishes that, you say three-fourths of the surface of the Earth is underwater. Let me drain the oceans dry. At the bottom of the oceans, you have a lot of sand. Take all of that sand to the moon, one grain of sand at a time. A million years there, a million years back. When he finishes, if you could add up all the millennium of years that it's taken to remove all the sand from all those places, eternity would just have begun. It's kind of a silly story, but it makes a pretty good point. If we are going to live that long 
with Christ because of our relationship with him, then how should we live our lives on this earth for 90, 100 years, something like that? So he offers an eternity of life, but it's not just about eternity, it's about a quality of life as well. Jesus said, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He's not speaking of material wealth either, although Christians can be wealthy. But the rich young ruler was told to give up his wealth for something better, right? What was the something better? Huh? To walk with Jesus, to be with Jesus, right? That's, that's what's better. That's what we've been talking about through the whole book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. He's better than our wealth, all of our worldly things, all of our entertainment. He is better than that. So it's an abundant life which deals with our relationships with our neighbors and with God. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves, we're to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. We get to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. How many of you would love to give up the fruit of the Spirit for material things? No. <laughs> Absolutely not. So eternal life is not just about eternity. It's about life. It's about the quality of life the time we'll be able to spend with Jesus, the love that we'll be able to share with others. So how can he save us in such a complete way? Well, Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. He always lives to make intercession for us. How can a, you know, if you were to ask me, oh, this, this sounds bad. <laughs> if, you, if you were to ask me, how could you, you how can you lose your salvation? You'd have to kill Jesus. And you can't. He has an indestructible life. But we are so tightly bound with Jesus that what he experiences, we experience. Listen to what it says in Romans chapter 6, verse 5. It says, For we have been united with him, Jesus, in a death like this. We shall certainly be reunited with him in a resurrection like his. We are tied at the hips together with Jesus because of his priesthood and his indestructible life. He intercedes for us and he is always there for us. Jesus is the beginning of a new covenant where our hearts are changed and we, because of our heart and our love for him, want to serve him, not a list of rules and regulations sacrifices that we must do but because of a greater love that we have for him i tried to think of what it meant to have a the power of an indestructible life that's the phrase that's used in verse 16. it must be incredible power i don't know many of you watched news this week but the buildings down in florida that came crashing down to the ground exhibited a great amount of power. But imagine the power to raise that back up. <laughs> and that's just the beginning of the power of Christ. His power is unlimited. It reminds me of a verse, I think it's in Romans, and it's 
may not come to my mind, mind in time, but he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not give us all things? He has the power to give us all things, the power of the resurrection. Paul was committed to this. He said this about the resurrection power. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, my Lord. Jesus is better. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, counting them as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain, from, uh, attain the resurrection from the dead. Just incredible power. I think Paul, of all of the apostles, seemed to have understood the calling, the, the power of Christ, maybe better than any others. He counted on that power all the time, didn't he? Traveling throughout the whole Mediterranean Sea area, he depended upon that power. And we can depend upon that power too. How can, he, how can Jesus always live to make intercession for us? How can he keep us saved all of this time? He has a hold of us and he will never let go. <laughs> he has a hold of us and he will never let go. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. See, God started in ages past before the world was created to save a people who would be of his own possession, who would be his own possession. And he has carried that plan all the way through without a hitch, offering his son as a sacrifice for our sins that we might believe in him and have eternal life. And so finally, Christ's eternal intercession that we've been talking about and his eternal salvation is for those who draw near to God through him. We must draw near to him, right? There is a decision for us to make, to draw near to him. Jesus, our high priest, is forever interceding on our behalf, but we must draw near to him. Romans 10, 9 through 13 says, Because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says... Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that salvation will be made complete because Jesus always intercedes for us. So we are to draw near to God, and he will draw near to us. 
Do you need Christ today? Have you ever come to Christ and drawn close to him through faith? Faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word of Christ. You've heard the word of God today. Is God calling you into a relationship with him today? Maybe you've gone to church. Maybe you've come to church here for many, many years, but you've never placed your faith and trust in him. Church membership cannot save you. You might become a church member somehow, but that will not save you. It's faith and trust in Christ. And so we offer that to you today. Christ offers that to you today. He says, come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is rest from your labors of trying to save yourself or trying to live your own life. It's a rest in him because he has accomplished it all. There's nothing he didn't pay for on the cross that we need for salvation. And so that offer is for anyone here today who's never received Christ. And my prayer is that you will make it today and let us know. Father, we thank you so much for this time that we've had discussing your word, talking over your word. And there's a lot in here. So I pray that you would help us to understand. And maybe right now things aren't clear and we need to go back and read through this again. I pray that if someone's curious today about whether they are saved or not, that first, if they desire, they would come and ask questions. But secondly, if they have time to go home and read through this, read through other sections of Scripture, and not live their lives in uncertainty about what would happen to them if they were to die today. Our hope and our prayer as a church is that everyone has an opportunity to hear the gospel and that they would be moved to place their faith and trust in Christ and become obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ, repenting of their sins. Father, you do your work today. We will trust in you for the growth. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.